The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the seventh chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. St. Luke writes, The disciples of John reported all of these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. When then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. This is the gospel of our Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, this exchange between John the Baptist's followers who went to Jesus to ask them if he really was the one, well, it seems a bit like, well, a blind date. You know, the kind that friend sets you up with another friend whom you've never laid eyes on, never seen a photo of, and have no idea of who you were looking for, other than perhaps a rough description of that person, go and find the Nazarene. He's about, well, 5'9", with dark eyes and olive skin and dark hair. He'll be the one wearing the tunic and the sandals. Great. That's really helpful. When John's disciples reach Jesus, they launch this conversation with John's question. Are you the one? Or should we be waiting for another? Jesus doesn't answer, but gets busy working miracles, healing, restoring sight and casting out demons. The proof is right in front of them. Then Jesus sends them back to John. He praises 
for his work, saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind see, the lame walk, and the lepers are cleansed. So the answer is yes. Yes, Jesus is the one for whom they've been waiting for and the one for whom we continue to wait his return. And we can rejoice in the certainty of that, of our Savior coming, of the coming, but also in the not yet. It is difficult for us to find assurance in this Statement, though, isn't it? Your Messiah, he's coming. The not yet. The separation that we seem to have now from our Savior. And as I prepared and researched for the sermon this week, I found myself feeling that this is the reason for this message that we have today. The separation. It's exactly what the lectionary writers wanted us to ponder. The common thread through our scripture text today, the obstacles, the trials and the struggles of separation, whether in exile, whether imprisoned or simply being turned away from our Lord, we shall rejoice in the comfort of our Messiah. Always. Troubles, they're a part of life. Stuff happens, but in the midst of every storm, God is present. His love brings us peace and real comfort. Even in the storms of sin and the tensions that they bring, God brings still peace through his forgiveness. His salvation is near to sinners who fear Love and trust in him. So we need not be anxious about anything, but may rest in the peace that surpasses all understanding. The peace that comes through the knowledge of Christ Jesus. As great as John the Baptist was in the midst of his troubles, Jesus only needed to remind him of who he was, who his Christ is the peace that surpasses all understanding. You've heard me proclaim this specific scripture verse from Philippians so many times. And perhaps today it would be an appropriate time to reflect on these verses in their context. They come from Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, a church that has its own problems, but not at the same level as perhaps Galatia or Corinth. Nevertheless, it still has dissension and misleading teachings, persecution and plenty of anxieties. Yet 16 times Paul speaks of joy and rejoicing in his epistle to the Philippians. Our section today is close to the end of his letter. As Paul is signing off, he gives a rapid-fire set of instructions, things that he actually expects those in God's family to do. But in that, do you sit here in the pews this evening and think, oh, great, here we go again, more things that we have to do to be good Christians? 
No, don't worry. Paul's instructions simply bring us face to face with our sinful selves as a mirror, as a guide. He instructs us to bear fruits that reveal our repentant hearts. To show by our outward actions that you are grateful that God is patient with you, slow to anger and abounding in everlasting love. Rather than give you and me what we deserve because of our sin and our rebellious attitudes, God still finds joy in simply loving us. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say that rejoice, feel or show great joy and delight always. And our first instinct is to ask, especially in difficult times and situations, can rejoicing just be turned on something that you can do? You might even be sitting here this evening and haven't found any delight in this service yet at all. How can we simply just turn on joy? But that's just it. How often in the church do we allow our selfish, our materialist cultures to decide what is right and wrong for us? How things feel to us alone. Why try to construct our own happiness to be told to rejoice in the Lord always? Well, it flies in the face of our own nature, our own instincts. Yes, if our hearts cannot rejoice in God, it means that we are not making him the center of what we do or who we are. We are, in fact, hopelessly misguiding ourselves. We are switching off his blessings and relying on our own selves instead. We as creatures are thinking that we know better than our own creator. And when this happens, we need to get back to where we can rejoice. We need to confess our sinful desires to be master of our own lives and ask God to put us in a right frame of mind. Before him. To do otherwise is to forego what he gives us. And what is that? On what basis does God, through Paul, make the claim that we ought to always rejoice? And why? Does he feel so strongly that he needs to repeat it? Because rejoicing shifts our focus away from ourselves and to what God has done for us. By his grace, by his mercy. The prophet Zephaniah summarized this beautifully. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Doesn't that reminder of God make you want to rejoice It's not hard to start rejoicing and to find delight in his words. They are performative and we are passive in him. 
And that is the very intention that Paul gives us in his instructions. Let the Holy Spirit work in you as you meditate on these verses. For rejoicing is what helps keep us connected to faith in Christ, to God's goodness and his faithfulness in his promises. If you stop rejoicing, you turn in on yourselves and lose the connection to God's forgiveness and all of the other ways that he works in your life. But it's not just our attitude, our posture towards God that Paul is dealing with here. Our love of God is seen in the love of our neighbors. So next, Paul addresses how we are to be with each other in order to keep this rejoicing possible. He goes on to tell us, let your gentleness be evident to all. The word gentleness is loaded with meaning. It has in mind concepts such as leniency, kindness, and generosity. Things like not enforcing a right, even though you have every entitlement and earthly matters to do so. Nowhere is this instruction harder to follow, but in relation to those who have wronged you. It's easy to be generous to those who have been generous to you, isn't it? But being lenient and kind where you have been wronged reflects God's forgiveness, who first through Christ has been lenient to us. In fact, it's the only possible way by God's forgiveness working in us in the first ways that we can act like this. And as the text says, the Lord is near. Why wouldn't we be lenient and encouraging and generous? For our Lord is near. In two ways to help us in terms of presence, including coming personally to you with his generosity as we hear his word and as we receive his sacraments. The beauty of these instructions is that far from burdening, they lift our burdens. To be lenient with someone is potentially to cut off the troubles before they even come near. We see another example of the lifting of these burdens in Paul's next set of instructions and his encouragement where he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Now that doesn't mean that we can't plan or think through the things and how they should work. But do you actually accompany them with prayer? Why don't we? Are we going to figure it all out on our own? Or might, might we bring our God and Savior into this equation? Are you the master? Or will you let God be God? The point is that when we pray to God, we are showing that we trust him. God knows our lives are full of concerns, trials and sufferings and things. Well, they do go wrong. 
this Advent season, it prepares us for the fact that Jesus came to be one of us. He knows these concerns and these sufferings himself, for he lived among us as a true man and is now present in us as we face our own trials. But Advent, it also reminds us that he brought gifts. John the Baptist told us how Christ baptizes us with the Holy Spirit and his refining fire. And in this baptism, we are joined to Jesus who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. God. Yes, God plants faith in us to trust Jesus who says, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Seek first my kingdom. That kingdom is what Zephaniah spoke of, a kingdom that releases from exile and makes us God's delight. Let's seek that, not anxiety. And the key to doing that Well, it's thankfulness. Paul says with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. After all, as 1 Corinthians asks, what do you have that you were not given? Being thankful, counting your blessings puts God rightly back into the equation. And it takes us out of the center. It gets our posture right. A posture where we recognize that everything that we have comes from God. And Luther put it this way. Thankfulness makes our prayer sweet and agreeable to God. Sweet in that it gives God due recognition. Agreeable in that it guides us from being greedy and self-serving. If we are thankful to God for the people who care for us, the rain that we receive, the safety our government can provide, the food that we eat, then we witness to the Spirit's work in our lives. And this has two effects. Inwardly, the Spirit builds faith through our continual thankfulness. And outwardly, being thankful gets us working with God in His mission because it shows others of the hope that we have and what a hope it is. For the last part of the text tells us that if we present our petitions to God thankfully, then the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The promise right there is no ordinary peace such as merely a lack of struggle. No, it's God's well-being, God's wholeness, and God's deliverance. It's God's righteousness. It can't be reasonable or thought through. It just comes to us as a gift, free of our own subjectivity. And what's more, it guards us. St. Paul, he uses this language of guarding, knowing his Philippian congregations would identify with it. For Philippi had a Roman garrison, Roman guards who protected the city. 
And if he were riding to a mountainous region with large trees, he might refer to this peace of God as being like a huge firebreak around the town, a firebreak that no ember could penetrate, guarding the town perfectly. And here, St. Paul telling us that when anxiety strikes, we are to counterattack with thankful prayer that God would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Dear saints, are you having trouble knowing of God's grace in this busy Advent season? Rejoice in Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit turn anxiety into thankful prayer, starting with all the things in which we receive joy, even the simple things of life, which are gifts from God, our daily bread, our family, our flock, and look forward to his peace, guarding your hearts and your minds. Yes, we do live very comfortable lives. We live in a part of the world where we can have beautiful, sufficient homes. We have jobs and ways of life that sustain us and allow joy and delight and all the comforts of this life. And perhaps that is the reason that people don't look forward to a home other than in this world. While everything is going well, one could easily have the illusion that complete happiness could be possible in this world. But then something happens that shatters that happiness, whether it's the death of a loved one or the loss of a job or the news of disease and illness. Again, we are reminded that we live in a world where there is suffering and pain, that life in this world, well, it's temporary. Our joy rests in the knowledge that we were made for eternity. The kingdom of God is our real home. And on the day when it comes in all of its fullness, that's when we will find pure and complete joy forevermore. And until then, we experience what could be described as the now and the not yet. Joy as followers of Jesus. We have joy now, knowing our sins are forgiven. We have joy now, knowing that God is present in every part of our lives. We have joy now, knowing God loves us and finds joy in singing over us. And we can rejoice in that. But we are yet to have the complete, pure joy with no hint of sorrow at all, which we will know someday. That is the future side of Advent. We look forward to the day when God's kingdom comes and God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And on that day, each one of us will truly be home forever. Home with our God. And home with the millions of believers who have gone before us. While we have cause for joy already in our lives, 
Let us look forward to the day of our great homecoming, when we, together with all of God's people, will know complete joy forevermore. And what a day of rejoicing that will be. So now, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Godspeed and amen.